As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Tribune Audio Network. I still wonder what was going through that school resource officer's mind when entering a fart bomb XL wrapper into evidence officially. From the Fox 6 Studios, this is Open Record. We're investigative reporters breaking down the big stories, what it took to get them, taking you behind the scenes. It's the stuff we couldn't tell you on TV. On today's episode, forget going to the principal's office. Students are going before a judge, the transformation of discipline in schools, and the impact it can have on a child's future. And watch out, those free trials you see online usually cost money. A closer look at the billion-dollar free trial industry. Hello, I'm Jenna Sachs, here with Brian Polson. Hi, Jenna. And Amanda St. Hilaire. Hello. Behavior that used to get you sent to the principal's office, maybe a phone call home or detention, is now getting students sent to court. It's something that could have lifelong consequences. And Amanda, how did this investigation start? So we started looking into this issue when we got calls from parents saying their kids were getting tickets and mandatory court appearances for things like talking back to the principal, pulling pranks, and swearing. Public records from seven school districts and police departments in our area showed that was true. It was happening. And what do those records show? So we found that for the most part, police responses to school disciplinary issues are steadily going up with charges for profanity, using cell phones without permission, in one case even setting off a stink bomb. Someone just gives me a ticket, like that's the end of it. I don't actually have to be directly accountable to anyone, and I don't really understand the impact of my actions very well. That's Jonathan Scharr. He's the director of the Restorative Justice Project at UW Law School's Frank J. Remington Center. Scharr has studied this issue, and he says this trend of sending kids to court just isn't working. The behavior is not getting better, and he says students who are involved with the criminal justice system at a young age are actually more likely to go on to reoffend. So he says restorative justice, which is focusing on changing the problem behavior and repairing the harm, is a lot more effective, and schools should be focusing on those methods instead. But that's where things start to get complicated, especially for the school districts. So why this increase in police response to the school discipline issues in the first place? We're noticing a trend of more school resource officers, so police officers who are assigned specifically to schools. And a lot of that has come up as we've talked about mass shootings, school security issues. And from the school district perspective, a lot of times this is a resource that they don't have to share the cost of. So for them, this is this great free-for-them resource For police, they'd have to respond to the school anyway. They like having a designated person there. What a lot of school resource officers are telling us is because they're already in the school, they're getting called by administrators more than they would originally to respond to things that could be criminal, could not be for an adult, but that typically police wouldn't get involved in with 
young kids, especially with teenagers and even middle schoolers. Things like making fart noises in class, which we can laugh about <laughs> right. it, but I mean, that's not the kind of thing you would have typically called the cops for in the past. Right. And that's the thing, you know, when especially going through that police report for the kid who set off the stink bomb, which was a very lengthy police report. I still wonder what was going through that school resource officer's mind when entering a fart bomb XL wrapper into evidence officially. Um, that's a disorderly conduct charge. And what a lot of people don't realize is, okay, it's not just you show up in court, you pay your ticket, you get a lecture from the judge. These can stay on your record forever. And even though we think juvenile records, they're sealed, not really. So if you want to go on to be a police officer or a lawyer or other professions that require licensing, there's access to those records, and there are people who can see those charges, and that can prevent you from going on to different careers. When law enforcement interacts with you again and they see that on your record, you're more likely to get charged with something higher. So there can be long-term consequences, even the denial of certain forms of financial aid. So sometimes the parents and the students don't realize that. They plead guilty, they pay the ticket, they want it to go away. Um, But when you're looking at it from that kind of restorative justice lens, if it's not changing the behavior and it's leading to those consequences... Is that really working? And that's what we try to explore. You mentioned the stink bomb. One of the things I want to ask about it, because I haven't read the reports, um, but stink bomb different than just maybe making some noises. I misinterpreted that. I've been at you know adult parties where someone's brought these, and they're pretty awful. <laughs> yes. It's a prank. Yes. It, it would be pretty disruptive in class to have something like that. I do think probably back in my day, and I know this was a long time ago, you would have been sent to the principal's office. You might have gotten a detention. Maybe you would have even been suspended. Probably wouldn't have gone to police. But I wonder, are these situations where it's someone who's been sent to the principal's office time and time again, and they're fed up, and they're like, this time, it's going to the cop? And it might be. And since these are student records, names are redacted, so we can't really track that. And administrators say, you know, sometimes... It's the last straw with this kid. We don't know what else to do, how to send that message. The tricky thing here is police and administrators, because administrators can request charges in some cases. They have a lot of discretion, which can be good, right? Because if someone has a first-time offense, they let's say they get caught vaping um, and you think a stern warning could do it and you want to avoid court, that's fine. But Also, the problem with having that amount of discretion is then you get to a place where you're wondering, are these punishments being applied fairly? So when you look at the high presence of police in schools, there are national studies that show that students of color, LGBTQ students, um, other students who historically belong to groups that have been disenfranchised, they're more likely to get criminal charges than their white peers who have the same records and have done similar behaviors. And that's hopefully not intentional on anyone's part, but when you have that discretion and that wiggle room, that's where the danger can come in. So you mentioned the phrase restorative justice earlier What is that? What are some examples of how that might work? So there are a lot of different examples of how it could work in a school setting. But the idea is, and it does take longer, and it takes more resources for the school to do up front. The idea is then it saves you more resources down the road. So for example, 
if you do have the student who gets caught vaping for the first time. Instead of writing the ticket, sending them on their way, now they have a tobacco charge on their record, you have that student put together a school-wide presentation about the harms of vaping and what it does to your body so that it's becoming more of an educational experience, which is what school is for. Um, But you're also not immediately jumping to that charge. Or in some cases, there's more of a structured form. So Waukesha County has something called teen court, where if you're appearing before a, a volunteer attorney who is acting as the, quote, judge, your jury and the attorneys in the room are students. And if you, you go through the process, they ask you questions, they recommend with adult supervision a sentence for you. And usually it involves some form of community service. If you punch a kid in the face, let's say anger management, things that actually get to the root of maybe what the issue is. Maybe you have to write an apology letter to the victim if there was a victim in this case. And then you go through and you do that sentence. Now there's nothing on your record. So you've had that chance to still have accountability for your actions. And sometimes it is more powerful hearing it from your peers than it is from an adult when you have groups of your peers saying, hey, this isn't okay. Um, that, that can be a powerful thing. And then they have to serve on future teen courts. So that's a more structured form of restorative justice. So it can look like a lot of different things. There are certainly some people who are going to hear this and they're going to hear the term restorative justice and this sort of thing and think you're coddling troublemakers, people yeah. who are causing the most disruption in schools. And with so many problems in schools these days that are very, very serious, I can imagine there are some parents who go, hey, my kid's not misbehaving. I want you to be hard on the ones who are. Um, why, why, how does this uh, impact that sort of notion, you know, the, the, the spare the rod, spoil the child saying? Yeah, so that's something we hear. A, it's funny. Parents have a very, um, seem to have a very mixed reaction to this concept. And I think part of it depends on what kinds of situations your child has found himself or herself in. So the parent whose kid... Um, you know, got a disorderly conduct for being mouthy with a principal might say, hey, this is, you know, back in my day, we never had this. Um, Why is my kid going to court? Isn't it the school's responsibility? But we have heard from parents who say, hey, if if you're a troublemaker and now you're going to court, those other students are going to see that and maybe they're going to avoid that. The issue is that's not what we're seeing from the data that we're looking at. So police and response in schools in some cases has doubled or tripled over the last two or three years. So that tells you that either students are reoffending or more students are behaving in this similar manner. So if it's not working, then the question is, what do you do about it? Well, I mean, certainly you have to take into consideration the one variable could be things are actually getting worse, probably unlikely when you compare it to other schools. But I mean, that's certainly one possibility. Could it just mean that kids have behaved that much more inappropriately? It, It could mean that when you just look at the numbers, but we went through the actual police reports and none of it seemed, um, disproportionately worse behavior than years prior. And again, you have that discretion. So we've seen some cases where a student who 
threatened to bomb the school didn't get sent to court, and then the kid who sets off the stink bomb does in the same school district. So doesn't seem to add up. It doesn't seem, but again, you don't know the history. There, there's a lot we don't know. There's a lot the schools don't know, though, and that's part of the problem because a lot of schools aren't tracking this data. That's part of what our investigation found. We had schools that came back and said, we don't record this. Milwaukee Public Schools came back and said, not only do we not record it, the police department doesn't share this information with us. Well, you'd think they would at least want to know, right, right. what's going on. So if you're not looking at the numbers and you're not looking at the reports, how do you know what's working? How do you know what's effective discipline for these students? And um, Jonathan Shar, the expert on restorative justice we talked to, brought up a point where he said, you know, if I'm paying a citation, if I'm paying a ticket, which let's face it, usually it's mom and dad paying for the ticket and not the 13-year-old, am I really having accountability for my actions or am I avoiding the actual root cause and avoiding the person who I hurt through this behavior? So he pointed to several national studies that show that schools that have deployed more resources for first responses like counselors, um, school psychologists or social workers, and use police as more of a last resort, that they had a decrease in behavior issues. Central to all of this is the school resource officer. Did you talk to any of them? Do you have any idea how they feel about this? Yeah, we talked to several off camera and um, we talked to one on camera. So Germantown School District, of all the ones we looked at, kind of stood out as doing things a little differently. And that's because the Germantown School District police responses over the span of several years, it was going down. And so we talked to them about why that is. And the school resource officer there said she's deployed as a, a last resort. She's not the first call in those situations. She knows each one of these students and their histories, and she sees the court process as a last resort. So the number one indicator of how school discipline is going to go down in your area, um, according to the restorative justice data we've looked at, is the school resource officer himself or the school resource officer herself. So how are they trained? What's their philosophy? Because there are some people who will go heavy-handed first. And some people might think that's a good thing, um, but some people might not think that's a good thing either. And that's where the national standards for school resource officers come in. And there are several school districts in our area that follow these national standards that say you should have a clear agreement between the school district and the police department. You should have very specific training. You should be tracking this information and school districts should be very involved in it. Um, but we found several school districts that do not follow those national standards. And that's where we started to see some of the, the cautionary tales. It certainly seems in this day and age that there are good reasons to have school resource officers in schools. But if you don't know, if one school district is doing something in an entirely different manner than another, and, and school districts are very, I mean, the, the governing of schools is a very local thing. And, and uh, people like to leave that to their local school district, their local community. How do we do things? But if you're doing it so differently, do we know what's working and what isn't working? And you can't really compare. It is an apples to oranges comparison. So that's why when we did this story, we tried to avoid saying, oh, well, Cedarburg had X percent of the student population charged and Racine had X percent. You can't really go back and back and forth and look at that because 
you are looking at different makeups of students, you're looking at different size school districts, and that's the reason that schools are given a lot of that local control and the freedom to be able to decide how they do things. I think the question is, how do you balance that with having national standards so that you don't have two students who do the same thing in side-by-side school districts, and one now has a permanent record for something that the teenage brain is not fully developed to understand the long-term consequences of, and then the other student is totally clear record, no barriers to anything he or she might want to do in the future. So it's that that fairness, but also that autonomy that school districts have and in a lot of cases should have. Well, I think you said it earlier, it really depends on what circumstance, because I don't think many parents are going to object to harsh treatment of someone who's showing up, for instance, with weapons. Right. On the other hand, someone who's vaping outside the school, those are very different things. Well, and the vaping thing's a really interesting issue because we saw we saw a lot of vaping cases. And school resource officers across the board told us that it used to be tobacco violations were almost non-existent, especially with all the awareness programs going on. And now that vaping is a thing, they're seeing that jump back. Vaping so, in the boys' room. Right, that, seriously, that was the, one of the most common police reports. And there are some who say it's such an out-of-control issue that we have to cite people, and we hope that their peers find out about it, and we hope we can drive home the long-term consequences. And then there are others who say, okay, it's wrong, we should punish them, but if you try vaping one time and get caught, should you have a lifelong consequence for that? And there's a discussion to be had about that. Well, thank you for starting that discussion. I think a lot of parents are going to be really interested in your report, and um, I'm interested to hear if people keep talking about it and if things change. I think there will be a lot for us to follow up on, and I really hope people remember that this story did start with a tip. It started with people calling us. So if you think you do have a potential story, please call us, send us an email, theinvestigators at fox6now.com, theinvestigators at fox6now.com. So free trial sounds great. Turns out they're not always free. In fact, fraudsters have turned free trial offers into a multi-billion dollar industry. Jenna, how does that even work if they're free trials? Exactly. It might start something like this. You read an article about a miracle product that gets rid of wrinkles or helps you lose weight or makes your teeth whiter. You click on the link for a free trial, enter your credit card number for a small shipping fee, and suddenly discover your bank account is making monthly payments of nearly $100. $100 a month for a free trial. This actually happens? It does. It happens a lot. In fact, there was one woman I talked to, and she told me how easily she got caught up in it. It just showed... I think it was Cher. She was looking wonderful, of course. And I clicked on it, and I read about it, how wonderful this stuff is. And you can have a free trial for $6.95 plus a free trial eye serum. So this woman wasn't the only one. I've talked to a couple people this has happened to, and their stories are very similar. They were bored. They went online, found these free trial offers, and thought, this one time I'm going to sign up 
What's the harm? I only have to pay this small shipping fee. But as it turned out, the products they were getting were low quality. The packages kept arriving at their homes month after month, and payments were being automatically deducted from their accounts because they gave their credit card number. And of course, canceling or getting their money back was very difficult because these companies are almost impossible to contact. So what did these offers look like? Because I know there are different forms. You can, you know, sometimes get them in snail mail, but I feel like you get five offers a second whenever you're just surfing the web. Sometimes these offers are disguised as legitimate looking news articles. So you might be on the website for a legitimate news organization and there's a link on the side to what looks like a real article about acai berries or, you know, something that'll help you lose weight. And you click on it thinking it's a real article and inside they offer this free trial. One woman I spoke to saw an article about two women who were on Shark Tank. We hear this one a lot. And they had this miracle beauty cream. They were self-made women and she really bought into their personal story and decided, you know, I'm going to support these women and I'm going to try their product. Um, Other times it might pop up on your Facebook feed. We hear a lot about problems with things that pop up on your Facebook feed. This is one of them. And you see this product, think I could really use that eye cream or um, the wrinkle cream and I'm going to give it a try this one time and that's how they get you. All they need is your credit card information. The fine print is going to be hidden or it's only found through a link that you might not notice. And you're signing up for a subscription instead of just this one-time offer. So you think it's only going to cost you $6.95 or $4.99 for the shipping fee, but it could cost you hundreds of dollars. And you don't realize it's a subscription. You think they're going to send you just one jar of this cream? Exactly. The jar will arrive in the mail and it's going to be a disappointment. It's a small little (laughs) jar. One woman said it reminded her of Crisco. The other woman said it was like liquid plastic. It's this teeny little jar with a cheap label smacked on it. And you think, okay, I learned my lesson. They got the shipping fee from me. And then a couple weeks later, you look at your bank account and you think, oh my goodness, they, you know, they got another $90 from me. And then the next month, another $90. And you're trying to cancel this service, but they don't have an address or a phone number on their website. And And the jars of Crisco keep coming in. Exactly. Except different products and none of them are good. (laughs) <laughs> and, and this, now, this is a worst line. case sort of scenario because I'm, I, at least I'm assuming, hoping mm-hmm. that that is the case. Are there real free trials out there be, or at least legitimate offers of free trials? And how do you distinguish between something that might be a legitimate free trial to, to get you introduced to a product and something where someone's going to start ripping you off for a hundred bucks a month? So there are some red flags that you can look out for. Um, Heavy celebrity endorsement. If they're saying Julia Roberts endorses this and Paul Newman and Ellen DeGeneres and Leo DiCaprio and Chrissy Teigen. And they often say, if you look on the fine print, not actually celebrity endorsed. Uh, But that's how they get you in. Um, And then other red flags, as I mentioned before, you can't find terms and conditions on the website. You can't find their phone number or an address. And if you look closely, you have a very short time frame to return the item. They might say 10 days. Well, if you're getting a product, it takes a little while to arrive, to try it out, and then to send it back or figure out how to send it back, which is difficult in these cases, and that's going to take more than 10 days. So those are some of the red flags you can look for. There are legitimate free trial offers out there, but most of them are scams. So what do you, you're in this position, you've signed up for this subscription, you're not finding an address, you're not having any luck getting your money back. Do you just have to settle for the fact that there's going to be $100 taken out of your account every month for the rest of your life? I would start by going to your bank. Um, They can track information different ways 
um, than you can as as your own self. Um, and they'll call these companies and try to negotiate. They'll pursue a fraudulent charge, which these companies don't want too many fraudulent charges against them because it raises suspicion. So often when they see that process starting, they'll jump in and say, oh, yes, we'll give you that refund. Um, so I'd start with your bank. If that's not working, the Better Business Bureau has had a lot of success um, getting money back from these companies. It can take a while. It can take nine months or so. So you have to be patient. Uh, so those are the two places I would start uh, because they've had success in the past. The Better Business Bureau has a scam tracker, and they have gotten 37,000 complaints about this scam. As I said before, it's a multi-billion dollar industry, and it's doubled this, and When you recently. say that, just to make sure I understand, you say this scam, this type of this scam? This type or, of okay, scam. Okay, so not from one there are particular a lot of people doing scam this. artist or something like that. No, there's just a, a lot of people have discovered that this is a way to make money easily, and people are volunteer, voluntarily just entering their credit card information into these websites. And interestingly, a lot of these different products are coming from the same fulfillment centers, where they just create this stuff in mass under different names like Revive or Bella New, very generic stuff, and they just slap a different label on it, and they send it out to you. So the Better Business Bureau did a really in-depth investigation where they tracked some of these fulfillment centers and found out they were sending out hundreds of products um, with the same scam, and they were getting a lot of complaints saying there was unauthorized billing, you know, um, charges that they didn't sign up for about these fulfillment centers. I've got you mentioned entering credit card numbers, um, which for something free should be a red flag, right? They don't need your credit card if it's free. Well, it's for the shipping, a, a, a lot of legitimate sure. free trials have you do that, and, and they may. But but that's uh, I guess on the one hand it's good because credit card companies, if you believe there's fraud, they're usually very good about not holding you accountable for a fraudulent charge. The question is whether or not you've whether that's it's fraudulent if you signed up for it if you gave over your credit card. This also seems like a good reminder to be really aware of what you're reading and where it's coming from. I had college roommates who almost fell for something like this because they thought it was a news article. Besides the heavy celebrity endorsement, is there anything that people can do if they're not used to having to discern between what's an ad or sponsored content, as it gets called all the time, versus... A legit news organization. Well, I would say, first of all, I wouldn't buy anything or sign up for anything through Facebook unless you research the company separately. So whatever you're looking at, whether it's on a news page or on social media, go to your own separate Google search and look it up, see what you can find. And if you can't find much, that's not a good sign. And if you're finding complaints, obviously don't sign up. But if you Google some of these products that the women received, like Revive and Bellanew, the websites that come up are clearly not legitimate. They are very basic websites. There's no contact information on it. There's not a lot of good um, reviews out there. So I would just recommend taking a step back, no matter how bored you are, feel like trying <laughs> something, just do a Google search and you'll find a lot of information just that way. We're so used to the convenience of the internet that sometimes it's easy to forget that that also makes it convenient for people who are trying to take advantage of you. It's, it's very true. We get so many complaints these days that start with a Facebook ad um, or something that popped up up on your computer and people click on it and it doesn't take a lot of effort on behalf of the scammer to make money this way. So they keep doing it. If you think that you are dealing with something that's probably legitimate, but you're just not sure and they're asking for your credit card for some small fee or upfront charge, 
what are questions you can ask to try to determine in advance, okay, you know, how am I going to get out of this? How do I make sure that I'm not going to get charged every month? Or what's your cancellation policy, that kind of thing? Well, that's assuming you can talk to these people to begin with, which you're not going to be able to. Do an online ad like that. You're just, you're just not going to find the contact information. It's not going to be easy. And if you feel like you want to sign up for something, try calling the company, having a conversation with the person. If you feel comfortable, maybe you could go ahead with that. But honestly, I think if your gut is telling you that it might be a scam, just don't do it. Usually your gut's right. And if you're just the slightest bit skeptical, just pay attention to that. You don't need it. The jar of Crisco isn't worth it. No. You know, in, in the new year, everyone's looking at beauty products and weight loss supplements. So that's when this kind of thing really takes off. Um, but we're all looking for easy solutions to things. And if it sounds too good to be true or it sounds like a miracle product, it probably is not. The, the old saying, there's no free lunch. Free sounds tempting, but there's a price to pay somewhere along the way. Right. The bottom line here is free is never really free. I'm sorry. <laughs> so if you've got a consumer problem or investigation, we would love to hear about it. You can fill out a form on our website, fox6now.com. So that's the dinner bell, which means it's time for our dinner party questions. This is a weekly segment where we answer questions we most often get asked at parties or events. Now here's the catch. We have no idea right now what this question is going to be. There are several envelopes in front of us, and we're going to pick one at random. And whose turn is it? Is this you, it Amanda? It might be my I think turn. Amanda gets to pick All the right. envelope. Okay. Have you ever forgotten your? <laughs> I'm. Have you? <laughs> oh boy! I'm laughing because Brian did this right like before we started. Ago. Have you ever forgotten your lines or your script, Brian? You go first. Well, now that doesn't really count because this wasn't <laughs> scripted. I just lost my complete train of thought. But yes, have I ever forgotten my lines, especially doing lives? Because when you're out live in the field, we don't have a teleprompter and you make notes or maybe bullet points and you have an idea of where you're going. And in particular, when you're live in the field, there are usually roll cues. You end with something, a phrase so that the you know people back at the station know when to roll the tape that, uh, that you want viewers to see. And if you know you've got to get to a place and you're talking and looking at the camera, suddenly you have that moment of where was I going and how am I getting to that place? And that's when you can end up fumbling around on the air and looking a little foolish. I, it's happened to you guys, it's right? It's not just me. Oh, it's definitely happened. I always was one of those reporters that had a notebook in my hand that I held below out of frame so that people at home couldn't see it, just as like a security blanket. Security, is it the phrase security yeah, blanket? Yeah, security blanket. I, always, I, held, I held it in my hand just in case I needed it. There are some reporters that refuse to hold any notes in their hands and they just want to go for it. I never really wanted to be that person because if your brain stops... It's you're stuck, and sometimes you find your mouth moving and just saying words until you find your way back to what you were talking about in the first place. Um, but yeah, I think it's happened to everybody. I don't know if I've ever had a truly terrible like moment, which means in now the that I said moment. it, not for like forgetting my lines, but I feel like it might happen now that I've said that. <laughs> I've had the we're teleprompter die on me. Now. I did have a story once where um, this is 
Maybe maybe we should admit it, but that's what this podcast is for. I've had moments in the newsroom where they've said to me, hey, can you just um, introduce this story? Somebody else wrote it. If you can voice it and just introduce it at the last minute, we would really appreciate it. And I had a moment where I was sitting at the desk and um, they said, uh, oh, no, the story's not here. Can you ad lib it? And I didn't do it. I didn't research it. Um, So I sat there and I tried my best to recall it. And I think I said like three, four sentences and then said, you know, back to to you. you. And then Jenna Sachs, Fox 6 News, and tossed it back. And they were okay with it. But the moment that they tossed it, my my, my mind was just completely blank. You got through it and no one realized that you had no clue what was in the story. I don't think so. But I obviously didn't give a very in-depth summary of what had (laughs) happened and did my best. And sometimes I think in our own heads, it's... It looks like a much bigger explosion than it actually is because we all have filler words and filler phrases we use when we're trying to recall the next thing we want to say. Sometimes what feels like a 10-minute pause is actually 10 seconds. So there have been times where I've thought, wow, I really bombed that. And I went back and looked and it's like, okay, people at home might not be able to tell. But that's where a lot of times for what we're doing... Um, it it's not necessarily beneficial to memorize every word that you want to say because it's more likely you'll forget it and you're better off yeah, that's having why the a bullet basic points idea. Work well. You right. know the the idea you want to get across if you're trying to memorize words it's a lot harder. I mean, I don't think I'd be a very good, you know, play actor because you've got to know your exact lines and and that that's you've got to stick to the script entirely there whereas unless you're good at improv. I suppose. But yeah, I mean that's where uh, the whole idea too is that we sound conversational and you just can't be conversational if you are reciting a memorized minute long piece or whatever's happening. So in real life, you wouldn't have memorized every sentence that you're going to say to the person you're talking to. You kind of have a general idea and you go from there. But you also have more time to get your point across, and you don't have everybody scrutinizing what you're saying. So that's where that back and forth can what be interesting. I, what I find happening more often now, because we do stuff that is pre-scripted, these investigations and consumer stories are often you know, approved through legal uh, teams in advance, and so they're really making us dot every I and cross every T. What I'll find, though, is maybe the end of the story has had updates or adjustments that get handled through email but don't get into the script and I've been in front of the camera and realized that moment where I'm about to come up back on camera and that's an old version of the script and you go <gasps> and you're trying to ad-lib the changes while you're seeing the old stuff and that can be a little bit tricky but um, certainly not as hard as that sort of deer in the headlights completely forgetting your lines. Lance, <laughs> like I'm <clears> just going <throat> to silently yeah, judge you. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> If you have a question you want us to answer, a dinner party question you'd like to hear us address, let us know. Shoot us an email at theinvestigators at fox6now.com. Thanks for listening to Open Record. We'd like to quickly thank the people helping us make this happen. Producer Pete, our editor Dave Machuda, and executive producer Leanne Watson. If you want more Open Record, just head to our website, fox6now.com. Tribune Audio Network.